I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We've lost responsibility, and I agree that we've lost an understanding of our spiritual nature. Hmm. And to me, it's probably at the heart of doing good work. And what I mean by that, and I mentioned this phrase in our previous segment, very few people are in touch with the miracle of being alive. We, we, we've just lost sight of the miracle, the, the fact that we're here, that we're alive, that we can do the things that we do, that we're that we can recover from difficulty, that we can make changes if we're unhappy, that even if your book is unsuccessful, you can have an extraordinary life, absolutely extraordinary. Welcome to Self-Helpful. I'm your guide, Kevin Miller, and I curate the sea of new personal development messages to bring the most influential leaders onto this show. Join me as I question my guests to better understand their counsel so we can all integrate the wisdom into our lives because we all want to elevate our own experience and improve the way we show up for others. The Self-Helpful Podcast is presented by Ziggler, your premier source for equipping coaches. Visit them at Ziggler.com. Friends, in this episode, I'm back with Jake Eagle. He's the co-author of The Power of Awe, Overcome Burnout and Anxiety, Ease Chronic Pain, Find Clarity and Purpose in Less Than One Minute Per Day. And this is part two, where I walk with him through his values and habits and the key areas of life. In truth, I veered away from my normal format here, and we spent the majority of our time around two statements he sent me when we first connected. Here's what Jake wrote. He said, I'm 67, semi-retired and wrestling with the reality that my old values no longer fit this stage of my life. I find semi-retirement to be quite a challenge and have not yet sorted myself out. I imagine a conversation with me may be potentially unsettling and raise more questions than it answers. Also, after having been a therapist for 30 years, I'm rather skeptical about many forms of therapy because when I look at how people are doing overall, I don't think the trajectory is very positive. 
So friends, I dive in right there asking about his values that no longer fit. Then what he sees is not working in traditional therapy. Join us for this ride. All right, I'm going to give everybody a preface to this episode. When I first was interested in the book and in having you on the show, you almost gave a caution and said, I don't know if you want me on this show. And one of the things that you said, and I'll read the email here, said, I'm 67, semi-retired, wrestling with the reality that my old values no longer fit this stage of my life. I find semi-retirement to be quite a challenge and have not yet sorted myself out. I, you had me at hello um, with that statement because, or for a couple of reasons. One, and this is, this is part two with you, the values and habits show. And you're saying that uh, questioning some of your values, but I think Jake, it's, uh, I'm, I'm mentioned the first one, I'm 52 years old and I had so much certainty in my youth that I do not have anymore. And being in the vocation that I am that is similar to you, it's, it's, you know, seeking uh, health and wellness and fulfillment and peace and joy and all these things and doing that. We want to know what works. I want to know what to eat. I want to know how much I should sleep. I want to know what exercises to do. I want to know what meditations to do. I, I want to know. I'd rather have the black and white and I find less of it. And on one hand, it can be freeing possibly. On the other hand, it can be really disconcerting. And so for you to say that, and you've got some years on me, unpack that a little bit for me, that your your old values no longer fit this stage of your life. What bubbles at the surface in that statement? Well, this is really what I was... Um excited and even nervous to talk with you about because it feels so um, so significant to me. I am someone who always had a high degree of certainty. Um, I left home when I was 16 years old. I started a business. Uh, I ran businesses successfully for about 16 years. Occasionally, I go back to school on and off, but I was so uh, driven to be successful and never questioned uh, whether I would be or not. Then I got to be in my mid-30s and realized I had a, a particular skill that seemed to make me effective working with people. Most of them had been employees, but also other business owners. And so I ended up going back to school became licensed as a therapist. And then I was in practice for 25 years. And in my practice, I brought in enormous amount of certitude. Whatever problem you had, I was confident that I knew how to help you solve it. And I was confident that I had very good ideas about what you needed to do. And I think that people, I mean, at the time, I never questioned it. I, I, believed I was very successful and I helped a lot of people. Now, looking back, I'm even less sure about that. I mean, I do, I do believe that I helped a lot of people, but I also see the limitations of the way that I worked with people because I was feeding a myth 
And that myth is that we're going to find uh, strategies that give us certainty, and mm-hmm. that's going to make us better. But really, now what I when I look back, it was the illusion of certainty. It wasn't certainty. It was the illusion of certainty. Because in reality, we live in a world that's full of uncertainty. We don't really know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we act as if we do. None of this was a problem for me. I, I rolled through life. I was very happy. I had a, a, what I would call a great life. And then we moved to Hawaii. At the time, I was 61. <clears throat> we got to Hawaii. Um, I thought many clients would follow me. Practically none did. We had a community back in Santa Fe. I gave that up. Um, I was making good money back there. We moved here. My income dropped dramatically. And I realized the degree to which I had become dependent on external validation. And I was embarrassed. Um, I didn't like that about myself. And I saw a fork in the road. I can either try to recreate a practice here. I can try and go out and get external validation, or I can avoid that. And I intentionally have chosen to avoid that. I said, I'm not going to do it because I know that if I do that, I'm just postponing whatever this deeper experience is, whatever this discomfort is that I have being in the world without other people telling me I'm great, I'm helpful, uh, they love me, they value me. So strip all of that away. And I wasn't doing as well as I thought. And it really was, uh, I really did embarrass myself because I have a, I'm relatively healthy, 61 years old at the time. I've got a great home in Hawaii, which was a dream. And my wife, Hannah, is fabulous. So I had what I call the three H's, health, Hannah, and Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And I'm unhappy. And I just found that to be really disturbing for a while. And now it's become my passion. Now my passion is what's missing? What what do I need to do? How can I help other people so that they're not creating a veneer of happiness and satisfaction, but creating something at a much deeper level? And that's really what I've been focused on for the last few years. Now, I was slightly sidetracked because I taught a course, I'll keep this relatively brief, but I taught a course after I got here called Thrilled to be Alive. And the reason I did it is that I I thought I should be thrilled to be alive, but I wasn't. And so I developed a method to help me recognize that I had a great life. And then I taught it to other people. And it was during that course that we discovered the power of awe. And my colleague uh, was in that course, Michael Amster, and we ended up doing studies. And then we took it to UC Berkeley and they wanted to do a study. And then Hachette, the publisher, wanted to publish a book. So I got a little bit sidetracked with awe, but I still haven't gotten lost in the external feedback. Uh, I'm, I'm very conscientious not to get carried away with um, other people's opinion of me uh, or what the world is saying about me. I'm really focused on something at a much deeper level. And if I were to boil it down 
and I know you and I are going to talk about this, but if I were to boil it down, it, it, it's about becoming uncomfortable. I'm sorry, becoming comfortable with uncertainty. And I think that actually is essential because we live in a world that, that is full of uncertainty. And if we don't find a way to navigate that with grace, I think I, I'll speak about myself, I think I will always be anxious. I think I will always have a degree of um, feeling contracted and concerned and, and um, wasting a lot of energy mentally trying to create things that are certain that really aren't certain. When you speak to the old values that no longer fit the stage of life, is that aspect of certainty one of those that you had a value on let's call it black and white right or wrong what works what doesn't what's healthy what's not and there was a certainty in that and so for you to sit down as a entrepreneur or as a therapist and come from that standpoint and i'm saying this jake because i relate to it so much that i was so optimistic i was so confident I did things, I got good feedback. And even now, as I hear people from 20 years ago or whatever it may be that, that testify to the value that I gave them, I, I find myself uncertain as to why exactly. Um, I don't, I don't totally, cause I, cause I, cause now I look back and feel like I was fairly ignorant in my certainty. But is that what you're speaking to as far as a value is one of? One of the values was certainty, absolutely. Okay. Another value was uh, productivity. And a third value was achievement. Everything, I was oriented always towards what I could accomplish, what kind of impact I could have, and how people responded. Speak to productivity then, because that is one, I don't know how many years ago, a decade, maybe more, I realized that I was addicted to productivity and to not be doing something that I understood as being productive. I, I just couldn't quite handle it. So to play, to, to have fun, to, to, to sit, to do what we're talking about, to be present, sit down and not do something, but just to be, I, I correlated no value to. And I say, I say it in the past. I I'm aware of it today. I don't know that the feeling has gone away. Yeah. I think that, um, I think I was similar. I, I knew intellectually the value of taking time off. And when Hannah and I would go on vacation, I would enjoy it. But my entire, um, my, my, my self-esteem was entirely wrapped up in how much money I was making, how many clients I had, how long my wait list was for people to get in to see me. Um, I, I was, uh, I introduced along with a colleague, I introduced NLP neuro-linguistic programming to Japan was the first person to take it there. And that became another, uh, another achievement to, mm -hmm. to do something significant, to make a mark in the world. So these were the measurements that I was using to evaluate myself. Now, for good or bad, I don't know, but I was relatively successful. So I felt pretty good about myself. But you and I spoke earlier in a previous segment, we used the word compensatory. Mm -hmm. 
And I think part of what I was doing was compensatory for my own insecurities, my own lack of development, my own, my inability to comfort myself without other people. I, I was getting so much from others that I didn't really need to learn how to um, give myself what what I now think is very important. So let's play with that. I I think we can all conceive of the dangers of external validation. Uh, we've talked in a lot of previous shows about our propensity to look for the, the A's affirmation, acceptance, approval, and, and on, look for that from others and how that sets them up for failure, who whatever others were looking to them for. And also it leaves us dependent on these external things to get that. How can we have those internally that I can conceive of? And yet when you talk about it in regards, especially to work to the things that we're doing, I, I'll admit to still a struggle if, if, I mean, my, so my new book is sitting behind me. It's been out just a few weeks. If it doesn't get good reviews, if it doesn't get good ratings, if it doesn't sell, do I just claim it's good anyways? Or there is an aspect of measuring the value by people's responses and where's, it feels like a tension between the two. Well, for some of us, it is. But did you see the Rick Rubin interview on 60 Minutes? I did not. No. Do you I know will. Rick Rubin? you know anything about his story? Uh, it, it's vaguely. He's a music producer who I, I didn't know. I didn't know much about him. He's very, very famous. He's a music producer who has worked with all of the many of the great, great musicians. Okay. And he's just come out with a book. Um, I think it's called something like The Act of Creating. But he's on 60 Minutes. And I'll just give you a couple examples. He, Anderson Cooper comes in to interview him, sits down. They start the interview. And Rick says, uh, can we stop for a minute? I'd like to do a couple minutes of meditation with you before we go on. And Anderson Cooper is bewildered. He's like, what? You know? So anyway, they do. They stop. They do two minutes of meditation. The video starts playing again. And you can just see that they're both in a different state. So I, I just thought that was fascinating. Then Ruben goes on and he talks about that when it comes to being creative, the last thing he thinks about, the last thing he considers is how the audience will feel or what the audience will think. His, his attitude is, I don't care about the audience. I care about my experience of creating. I want the experience of creating something to be joyful and nourishing and exciting. And that is what he uses as his measurement for his work. And, and so the reason I bring that up and relate it to you and your book, yeah. if you had a great time writing your book, if you loved the process, if you feel good about the book, according to Rick, that's a win. That's a win. You, you can't lose. It doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter whether it sells or not. And I can't say that I'm at that place, but I am keenly aware of it and I am paying attention to it every day. I'm, I'm in the middle now of writing a, a new course and I just keep coming back to, am I writing something and loving the process? 
Am I writing something that I would love to go through? Am I writing something that I deeply value? And I'm finding it to be really compelling, a really compelling way to work. I resonate with the tension of that, of doing something that I find inspiring and then, you know, within my work then, but then questioning how will it be received? But you, uh, you, you have tension because you're adding the latter question, which is how will it be received? Yeah. Rick, Rick Rubin says he never even asked that. He doesn't care. Now, in a way, you could say when you're that successful, it's easy. You don't have to. Sure. But I have a feeling that he's always been this way. When you see him, I, I would encourage you to go and look for the 60 Minutes interview with him. It's quite... Well, I will. And if he has a new book, we'll, we'll hunt him down and get him on the show. Yeah. yeah. Um, for sure. I, it is one. I mean, you know, we talked in the first show about social media and, and our devices, and we're in such a comparison culture. We know that it feels like it's depressing because people are always seeing. I mean, I can do that myself. There's always going to be somebody younger who has less going for them, who's done more than I have. And I just have to shove that aside somewhat. But I, 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 I would be lying if I said it doesn't, it doesn't affect me. Uh, it does. Most of today, you will be indoors, likely your home or your office. I am as well. Even with my treks out into the woods, I spend a lot of time inside. And we're going to think about 20,000 breaths. According to the EPA, the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air, sometimes up to a hundred times more polluted. At my studio, we have heat being forced through old ducts. I walk on carpet full of years of junk. No idea what's floating in the air that I'm taking constant gulps of. The solution is an air purifier and air doctor is just the best. Air doctor filters out 99.99% .99 of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, bacteria, viruses. They do it so it, your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code KEVIN, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks off. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com. Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital. And Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is, and Shopify is king in that department. They also have top tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. 
shopify.com slash Kevin. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, what I would suggest to you is that you're, um, you're wasting a lot of time allowing that tension to exist. I'm not sure I have the answer. I'm not sure I could tell you how to get rid of it, but I think it's really worth figuring out. You're 15 years younger than I am. I'm doing it now. And I wish I had done this much earlier. Yeah. Um, I, I personally have a question about how early we can do this. I'm not sure we can do what you and I are talking about. In other words, kind of disregard the external validation. I'm not sure we could do that in our 20s or 30s because that feedback is important. It helps us shape ourselves. But you and I are both of an age where we've done a lot of shaping. We, we both have done a lot of work on ourselves. And do we really need the external world at this point to figure out how we want to live our lives and how we want to conduct ourselves? I, I don't think we do. Goodness, you're, are you familiar with Arthur Brooks? Yeah. His latest book, Strength to Strength, that makes sense in correlation with his book that there may be a time for that, you know, building, creating in the first half of life and some of that external validation. But at this point where we are now, that can we move past that? And, and, and maybe we can't do that until we have evolved, uh, earned. I don't know. How would you say that? That there is a place for it. That's an interesting overlap on his book, Strength to Strength. I think evolved would be the word I would use because earned goes back to the, the old okay. model a little bit. Right. So that's I think fair. I would say evolved. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Um, when you looked let, at, let, your me, let me go, let me go one step further with that though, with Please. you, because let's just say that your book is a complete bomb. Uh huh. If you use that to become less happy, if you use that to become less patient with your kids, if you use that to feel less valuable, uh, that, would be, that would be a shame. That would be a contamination of, of who you are. You did something positive. You wrote a book. You obviously did, I'm, I'm assuming, the best you could. You think it's valuable. Maybe the world gets it. Maybe the world doesn't get it. But for you to give that kind of power to the world out there, Right. To potentially disrupt you and your life and your family, um, I'll just make it simple. That's crazy. Okay, that's crazy. That's a that's a way that you would undermine yourself. That would be a shame. Okay, let's dig in there. What? How long were you a therapist? Have you 20, been twenty seven years? Twenty seven years. Um, Okay, because you also sent me in your email after having been, a, okay, you said, yeah, after having been a therapist that long, I'm rather skeptical 
about many forms of therapy. Because when I look at how people are doing overall, I don't think the trajectory is positive. We, I'm going to come, I'm going to come around to the question, to my question, uh, to question that. I mean, we as a culture, let's look at America. We have more information on, let's just say physical health and wellness. Well, physical and mental health and wellness. We have more information than ever. And of course, more access to it than ever. Uh, it's kind of like the, the, the quote that came along. We, we have the, uh, world's information in our pockets, you know, in our devices. And yet we use it for looking at cats and arguing politics. Um, we have more information than ever. We are also, as you know, sicker, sadder fatter than ever the chronic illness is is on a hockey stick curve uh going up so when you say that about therapy are you questioning the methodologies of therapy or or which that's how i took it but i'm gonna i'll ask you to answer it are you are you questioning the methodologies of therapy or are you lamenting that in the face of maybe good therapy we as a culture don't seem to be doing better? I'm challenging the methods of therapy, and I'm challenging the entire frame, uh, which I think is completely missing the point. And I, I, I need to have a caveat here, which is okay. generally I work with pretty high-functioning people. That's been my focus. Couples counseling, individual counseling, um, business executives. So I want to acknowledge that there are people who are so uh, challenged and their circumstances are so difficult that some of what I'm going to say may not apply to them. I, I understand that. That's, but generally speaking, I think we've shifted into a place where A, we're treating people as if they're fragile. We, I don't believe people are fragile. Um, we make an enormous amount of excuses for poor behavior, which I refer to as being immature. Um, I'll give you examples. Mm -hmm. um, client comes in, says, uh, my mother um, corrected me in front of everyone at the dinner table last night, and it was really traumatic. And I'm thinking, traumatic? I mean, maybe embarrassed, but traumatic? I don't think that's traumatic. If you look online at the use of the word trauma, mm. it was hardly used in the 1950s, and it's at an all-time high now. Mm -hmm. Then look at the use of the word responsibility, and it, mm. it's the opposite, right? It used to be used all the time, and now it's on a decline. Um, that's no coincidence. And therapy contributes to that because therapy invites people to think about things as having been traumatic and it reinforces the client. In other words, client will come in and say, oh, I had this traumatic experience. And the therapist will say, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I, I don't do that. Somebody says to me, I had a traumatic experience. I would say, was your life threatened? I mean, what happened that was so significant? And they say, well, I couldn't get the right blouse for a party. Mm -hmm. I mean, ridiculous things in my mind that people frame as really difficult. Uh, another example I'll give you is attachment patterns. It's a whole model within psychotherapy where we talk about people's attachment patterns, and it goes back to how we connected with our primary caregiver. Right. Uh, 
it's got a lot of research behind it and I think it has some validity. But when I work with couples, it's very common that they will say, well, the reason I'm impatient with my wife is because of my attachment pattern. My therapist told me that I have what's called an insecure attachment pattern. Therefore, I behave in this way. That's not helpful. That just becomes a justification for why you behave poorly or why you're immature. And therapy is just riddled with one example after another. I'll give you one final one. Well, two. Um, there's something known as the parts model where people talk about their inner parts. I have part of me that this and part of me that wants that. I have an inner child part. Okay. It's not really true. It's just a metaphor. But therapists have taken it so literally and so seriously that they help people think of themselves as having separate parts. And when people behave poorly, they'll say, oh, well, that was my scared part. In other words, that's not really me. That was my scared part that spoke to you in that inappropriate way. Mm -hmm. And then the last example, which I just went through with our oldest daughter who came to see us and is kind of individuating. Uh, she's being very critical of me and of her mom. And she based it all on the following. She said, that's how I feel. That's how I feel. And just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean that uh, it's a basis upon which to uh, treat other people or blame other people or be nasty to other people. A feeling is the result of some story you're telling yourself. And the story is made up. And it's not a fact. Mm -hmm. It's completely subjective. So I'm going on a little bit here, but what I'm trying to convey to you is that there's so much going on in the world of therapy that is not calling forth our resilience and our strength and asking us to take responsibility for ourselves. And, and that's where I think we're really, uh, we're in trouble. Thank you. And I'm going to ask about that. You know, we could say that I mean, it's a pessimistic view that's, that, that would be offensive to a lot of people, but I'll say it anyways. And we know that in, in a media standpoint, if it bleeds, it leads. There's more money in a negative headline that's dramatic and traumatic and, and all those types of things. And we would say, that's just terrible. You know, it's people trying to make money, but they know if it bleeds, it leads. And, and, and it does. Over here in therapy, I don't personally experience therapists consciously doing this or even the APA, you know, pushing this, this, this perspective, but there's more money to be made in a victim culture. And, and I hear you saying we have a propensity, whether it was intended or not, that we are coddling people into a victim mentality and a fragile mentality as opposed to calling them to strength and responsibility. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. And it is, you know, the therapist has to look at him or herself. Mm -hmm. um, are they living in a victim paradigm? Of course, their immediate response would be no. But if you listen to the way people talk, and this is very nuanced, if you listen to the way people talk, including most therapists, they'll say things like, 
well, she made me mad. And I would immediately challenge that. I would say, no one actually makes you mad. No one makes you mad. So I, I encourage you to change your language. If you want to say, I made myself mad or I made myself angry, that's fine. That's accurate. But other people don't make you feel a certain way. They, they do whatever they do. They may behave in a way that's egregious. Okay, that's an event. And you now have a choice in how you respond to that. Mm -hmm. And this is where I start to get resistance from people. But you do have a choice. If Viktor Frankl can find awe and beauty in Auschwitz, which you and I talked about in an earlier segment, then I have a choice all the time in my life because my circumstances are not that difficult. Yeah. Would you say the construct is somewhat as we look at therapy the con and i'm saying this because we're at an all i think we're at an all-time high of 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 therapy business i mean since covid especially i've never experienced therapists they're booked out which i would say on one hand is great who doesn't need therapy who doesn't need some insight to their life so i would on one hand say that's that's great now then the question is is it helping and i hear that you saying that and question that well my easy analogy then is to go to the just the medical system, traditional medicine, uh, Western medicine. Uh, you know, here in America, we're great at fixing things that are broken. If you're in a car wreck and you're mangled, this is a great place to be, man. We can put stuff back together. Uh, we're horrific, it seems like, at preventing uh, illness and disease, and we tend to grow it. And the highest paid doctors are the ones that fix things. Uh, the lowest paid doctors are the ones that try to prevent it. It's, it's terrible. And it's a construct. I don't think, uh, the average medical doctors out there trying to hurt anybody. They just don't have time. The construct does not help. It does not enable them to say, Hey, you got high blood pressure. Look, we got about 10 minutes. That's what the ICD code, you know, enables us. I get paid for it's about 10 minutes. I, I can give you a pill. You know, maybe you shouldn't eat that donut, but here's a pill. We don't have time to get down to a deeper cause. Are you, is the construct over here of therapy in a similar place because ultimately they don't get paid if there's not a code if there's not a label what what is it uh we got icd on on the medical side what are the codes uh, for therapy the, the dsm dsm yeah thank you right yeah, yeah yeah absolutely it's the construct it's the idea that the average therapist has to see you know 25 30 people in a week that's overwhelming um, when i used to be in practice I would see two people a day. I would, I would put aside three hours for each person. If they didn't use it, they didn't use it, but I put aside three hours hmm. and I would work four days a week. It allowed me to hold people in my consciousness. It allowed me to really form a relationship that was meaningful with my clients. That's a completely different model. And it's, that's how my mentor worked, which is where I got the idea. And to me, it was the most natural way in the world to work. And I think it was highly effective. But the construct that we see in general um, doesn't encourage that level of connection, doesn't give the spaciousness, doesn't give the time. And there is just this trend of treating people as if they're fragile. One of the expressions in therapy is you have to meet people where they are. The therapist right. has to meet the client where they are. Why? Uh, if you come in to see me, I'm actually going to do this with you around your book. Um, you go, well, I'm, you know, I'm concerned if my book doesn't sell well, that that would be difficult for me. And I'm just going to keep challenging that saying, 
I don't buy that. It doesn't make sense. Why would you do that to yourself? You're, you're making up meaning. You're telling a story in your mind that's not a constructive story. And I would challenge you to change the story, to change the way you're making meaning. And this, to me, is the heart of where, where really effective therapy takes place. Because meaning is made up. Most people, they may nod their head and kind of like go, oh, okay, but they don't really understand, I think. Meaning is made up. An event happens. We all have our own subjective interpretation of that event. What we don't talk about is the fact that we're all making up meaning of it. And when we start to work with people at that level, it's really profound because I'm asking you to take responsibility for the story you're telling. I mean, you bring this, so you're bringing me to a point of, you, we're talking about construct. Let's, let's play with that word, the construct of traditional medicine, the construct of therapy that, and this, Jake, this is a great overlap. We've had some great shows. We had uh, Vienna Farron on the show recently, a therapist. Her book is called The Origins of You. And it's really talking about the impact of our initial programming, our initial, I'm going to use the word now for construct, that everybody who walks into your office, no matter how old they are, they have a personal construct that was developed from whatever upbringing they happened to have. They didn't choose it. It's just, it is what it is. That's what they're walking into you to to discuss the problems. And if I hear right, you're saying the problem is your construct. The problem is not that circumstances or that event. Ultimately, I mean, obviously there are things that happen. People get raped. They get, I mean, there's terrible things that happen. So not to minimize those, but ultimately it, at the end of the day, whatever happened, happened. And it's the construct from which we perceive it. And as you said, the story that we tell, I, Jake, I hear you. This is an overlap to messages we've had on here, but we can't, I feel like it's almost impossible for us to conceive. For you to stand here and look at me in the face and I can intellectually say, yeah, I hear you that it's just my story. And yet we're going to hang this thing up. And that's all I know is my story. It's monumental. It's like a rebrainwashing is needed. Well, it is. And um, e- even some of the things you're saying, you're acting as if you believe that our origins strongly influence who we are today. Do, do you believe that? Yes. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's true. I mean, really? yeah, I, okay. I understand it, but I think we want to, we want to take a step back and we want to challenge that. Why are, why are twins who are born in the same home and have the same experiences in early life? Fair. Why do they turn out differently? Yeah. Um, why do the majority of people who were sexually abused, majority, uh, think of themselves as victims? And other people who were sexually abused don't. They, they do something different. They make meaning in a different way. Yeah. And none of us learn how to make meaning overtly. We just see the people around us, our parents and our family. We see how they make meaning. And we make meaning as a result of that, of, of, of what we're surrounded by. But it's still made up. It's not, yeah. it's not a truth. 
okay, then you're into that arena though of not though of oh, it's back where we started in our first discussion. It's all a mind game and we are making it up. And so you're saying if you've got a problem here, just make up a different story. Yeah. I'll take out, the it just, it, it, you know, it's not just make up a different story. Okay. It can be challenging, but yes, okay. make up a different story. And there's kind of three ways you can do that. Um, the first one is the most effective and the most difficult, which is stop telling the story. Stop, just stop. The second one is change the story. Somehow alter your perspective. So look at it from another person's point of view. Go out 20 years and look back mm -hmm. and see how it looks from there. Go to your deathbed and think about it from there. Mm -hmm. So, the, so you can stop, you can change it. And then the third one is deal with it. In other words, I can't stop telling the story. I can't really change the story successfully. So I have to go and I have to deal with whatever is this reality I've created. I have to actually confront someone that treated me poorly. I, I, I have to do that. I have to correct it. That's fine. Um, but in none of those scenarios, are you a victim? You're proactive. Yeah. Tell me about the dealing with it, because I thought you were going to say deal with it by just accept it. Just accept it. It is. It just is. You can't do anything about it. Just accept it. But is that it? Or, or that could be it. But you're also saying, or go do whatever you need to do. That could be it. Um Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The example that comes to mind is um, you go to someone and you confront them because they treated you poorly in your mind and you say, it won't work for you to treat me that way if we're going to continue to have a relationship. And they say, well, that's just the way I am. In that case, I think acceptance is probably the answer, saying one of two things. I accept this is the nature of relating with you, or I accept that I cannot be in relationship with you. Right. Right. And, and I'm, a, I'm very big on not tolerating relationships that are unhealthy. I think it's very damaging for us and very damaging for the other person when we tolerate poor behavior. Yeah. But I, I, I keep coming back to you in the book. Can you imagine your book is a bomb? It does terrible. You get the worst reviews in the world. Mm. And you use that in some way to feel bad about yourself. And you carry that with you the rest of your life. I mean, do you see how... Um, no, when you put it that way, it seems stupid. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Absurd. It, when you say that I use it to, so it happened. Yeah. It, it, well, hopefully it doesn't happen, but if it happened, it feels bad. It feels bad. Uh, and that's fair. I can have a bad emotion. That's not wrong. Right. Uh, I can feel sad, disappointed, you know, whatever. But then for you to say, but are you going to use it? 
to feel bad about yourself, to feel less, to minimize yourself, to be fragile, to use your word. Am I going to do that? And that's, that's dumb or unhealthful or unhealthy or unproductive. And I would say, yeah, it, it, it's just a thing. It so should let's, be. Let's tell a different story. Let's say you can't stop telling the story. Let's, let's make up a story that the book doesn't do well. And as a result, you really look at yourself and you really look more deeply at what matters to you. And you, and, and really this is kind of what I've been going through. You realize that you're overly dependent on the external validation. Mm-hmm. And so you end up taking yourself to a much deeper place of self-acceptance and you shift a value. And, and, and 20 years later, you look back and you go, best thing that ever happened to me that that book didn't do well. Got it. And the irony is it didn't do well. And then I wrote a book about how I felt because it didn't do well. And that was a mm-hmm. bestseller. <laughs> right. Right. No, if it really bombed. I would end up talking about it here and, and probably get more downloads. Uh, and get my validation there. <laughs> there. Uh, that's fair. Talk, talk to me about, well, no, I actually I want to go back to your values again. So if I go back to that, it's saying that your old values no longer fit the stage of your life because you're saying, you're saying they were errant or naive or uh, they were, were they compensatory. Just, oh, they were okay. Okay. And they, they don't serve now. Maybe they did serve. Would you, would you give them credit? Say they, they did serve well back then they had a purpose and you're not totally invalidating them, but they don't serve you today. Yeah, that's my biggest question. If I had known in my 20s what I know now, could I have managed my life differently? I don't know the answer to that. I I intuitively believe I could have if I had a mentor who really walked me through what you and I are talking about. But since I don't know, what I will say is that the compensatory value I had to push myself to strive to impress other people, I think it served me well in our culture. It was very rewarding given the culture that we live in. Um, I have a belief that I could have conducted myself in a healthier way, but I had no idea about that at the time. That's interesting, Jake, because I am pretty open with, so I was a pro cyclist and uh, didn't understand what an emotion was at all. And, you know, you just, it doesn't matter. Uh, We don't care about anything other than uh, there's no place to be fragile, to use your word again. You dig deeper and you get to the line and try to win the race. That was great. Great. So endurance, suffering, whatever, those were great skill sets that helped me as a cyclist. I took those into other areas of life. In entrepreneurship, to a degree, there were some benefits there, though I started to run aground regarding relationships there. And then to go to that relationships, the intimate ones in my life and taking that, that I don't deal with emotions or whatever. I just endure and suffer. Well, that didn't serve me well there. Is that in my my track? Yeah. Yeah, beautifully. I mean, what you're getting to is a more nuanced perspective, where which is when we contextualize things. We say, mm-hmm. this is good at this time with these people in this situation, but this same 
capability is not appropriate in other circumstances. And we don't do that very well in our culture. We don't, we don't teach kids critical thinking skills. We don't teach people to be discerning. Gregory Bateson, who was a famous anthropologist, said that making fine distinctions is the definition of intelligence. The finer the distinctions we can make, the more intelligent we are. So instead of seeing the world as black and white, if we can see it in a hundred different colors, we're more intelligent. Which almost comes back to that word of sensitive that we were talking about, which is part of, again, this book, uh, Sensitive by Andre Solo, saying sensitive. We're not talking about the sens sensitive person as, as in regards to a fragile person, like you said. But we're right. talking about somebody who is highly attuned to certain things and may need to adjust for those. That's what I'm feeling. I don't feel like I am a weak person or a fragile person. I am realizing how sensitive I am. And if I want to be at my best, how I will then manage and mitigate my life to help me be at my best, uh, at my best place. Um, looking at that, I keep coming back to your word fragile, that we have a culture or a therapeutic construct of treating people like they are fragile, would you say instead of, well, you said the word responsible and expecting, expectation is a hard word, but I was going to say expecting more of them. Would you have a client theoretically and you want to expect more of them, not treat them as fragile? Yes, yeah, excuse me. <clears throat> I think my greatest strength as a therapist was that, and as a person in a way, um, I see people's best and I reflect it back to them. When people meet me initially, they love it because I hold them in high regard and I see what they're capable of. That's what I did with clients for years. Eventually, some people get to a point where they feel like they can't satisfy my expectation and then they aren't happy with me they disappoint themselves or they judge themselves harshly. Of course, that's not what I want them to do. And so I have to be aware of adjusting my expectation of clients in particular. But in general, I believe in holding very high expectations of other people. And um, my wife and I do this. We both have incredibly high expectations of one another. We're extremely intolerant of poor behavior. Hmm. Um, and it works so well. It works so well. Our, our marriage is easy and it's nourishing and it's, um, uh, it promotes, uh, it promotes good self-regard. Hmm. You're going back to this aspect of changing the story, stop, tell, stop telling the story, change the story, deal with it, but make a different story in regards to those real or perceived traumas, you know, whether we want to call them big T traumas, little T traumas. And I appreciate you talking to trauma because yeah, that word is a buzzword right now. And we've had, or not had to, but I've questioned it. Like we can't, you know, everybody has things that have hurt them. But yes. I can't say that I've had, when I think, I, I've never associated with the word trauma because I never felt like I had some life-threatening thing. So I appreciate you saying that. Now, I did have things that were disappointments that I reacted unhealthfully to and kept the story. So I need to change that story. So if I come to you as a client, there may be some stories, relevant stories, things that we need to address. One, 
I'm really interested though in what you said earlier, and I've got it in bold and I keep gravitating back to it. So I'm just going to honor that. And, and and you said the question that I think you were asking yourself when you realized your own dissatisfaction, what is missing? Is right. that as we're all sitting here viably, uh, you know, as viable therapy patients, prospective therapy patients or, or, or are right now, is that a fair focal point that you would come to to say at the end of the day, that's what we're talking. You're walking in, we're walking into your office and you're wanting to know, look, bottom line, what is missing? If there wasn't something missing, you wouldn't be here. So what is it regard? And these things may attribute to that, but is that what we're getting to at the end of the spear? Yeah, I think, um, I think it's a good question, but probably too vague. Okay. Because we need to go back to some basics, like the idea that we're each making up meaning, the idea that um, no one does anything to us. I mean, they, they may do things, but we have to take responsibility for ourselves and how we respond, which is about growing up. It's about becoming mature. It's about um, creating good self-regard. And I think we need to do those things along with asking the question, what's missing? Because if we don't do those things, I think it's just too overwhelming. It's like, if I come in for therapy and I start off feeling like a victim and you say, what's missing? I'm going to say, well, I want somebody else to make me feel better. Okay. So I think we have to put certain uh, foundational blocks in place. And then we arrive at the question of, okay, now, What's missing? You're, I mean, ultimately, Jake, your aspect of responsibility has me intrigued in, in regards to therapy. That, as you said, trauma we hear about, it's plastered all over, the, and we've lost the word of responsibility. I don't hear that within the aspects of therapy much, within the construct of therapy. Is that well, here, let me relate it to this. So we had Dr. Tama Bryant on the show, who's now the president of, she was the president-elect, now president of the APA, so American uh, Psychological Association. It, not her key shtick, but a big aspect of her was bringing spirituality into uh, into therapy, saying that, and her, her aspect is it's, it's a primary construct of humanity of our lives to not integrate that into therapy. We're, we're missing out on a connection point and a relevant point with people. I, I like, I appreciate that. I think it's a good point. Okay. To take that same aspect though, if you're in with you in your role as a therapist and in your experience, would you say, that's a primary platform for you. We have lost the aspect of we've, we've gone to treating people as fragile, giving them labels, treating them as victims, and we've lost the aspect of responsibility. Uh, we've lost responsibility. And I agree that we've lost an understanding of our spiritual nature. Hmm. And to me, it's probably at the heart of doing good work. And what I mean by that, and I mentioned this phrase in our previous segment, very few people are in touch with the miracle of being alive. We, we, we've just lost sight of the miracle, the, the fact that we're here, that we're alive, that we can do the things that we do, that, we're, that we can recover from difficulty, that we can make changes if we're unhappy, 
that even if your book is unsuccessful, you can have an extraordinary life, absolutely extraordinary. Um, th this is foundational. Uh, in, in the course I'm developing, a new course, it's the first chapter is reconnecting with the miracle of being alive. We, we've lost sight of this. And I'm not saying that I can do it perfectly. I, I will share with you what I think is my greatest fear and challenge, which is that if Hannah were to die to predecease me, I'm not sure I'd be okay. Mm. Um, for one, our relationship is just so rich and and we're both introverts, so we don't have a big social life. We're somewhat reclusive. So I, I know that this is an area of vulnerability, but in my mind, because I understand the miracle of being alive, yeah. and if you have another way of saying it, I'm open to that. Even if she were to die, I still wake up the next day with enormous opportunity, with enormous possibility. I, I don't know exactly what it is, but the ocean is still beautiful. And it's still fun to play with our cat. And it's still fun to do so many things, but we lose sight of that. Mm -hmm. And I think it contributes to us feeling like victims as opposed to waking up every day, just feeling appreciative. Go, I'm so happy to wake up. Um, my brother died at 56 from a brain tumor, and I was 52 at the time. Mm. And ever since then, when I'm unhappy and when I'm struggling, I realize he would love to have the problem I'm having today. He would love to have the problem I'm having. He would love to have a book that was just published and wasn't doing well. If you, as you state it, in those words, yeah, if my, if my book did not do well, it would really just, it wouldn't be a blip in my life. My life is already, there's already so, it's already so rich. Um, gosh, you know what? It reminds me, I, I watched a movie last night that I wanted to watch. I watched it by myself because I knew nobody else would want to watch it. And I don't know what called me back to it. And it is called Meet Joe Black. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 20 years old or so, Anthony Hopkins and, and Brad Pitt. And I just found myself and in it. And this is this is a, a line I had not I had missed before. And I wrote it down. Matter of fact, I bet it's right here. I wrote it down last night and he's talk Joe Black, who plays really he's plays death in, in essence. And he's talking to Anthony Hopkins and he's asking him about do, do you have enough I, and I'm missing the context here, but did you have enough nice pictures? He's, and he's talking about kind of the picture behind me, memories, things that you've done. Do you have enough of them to be satisfied? And the, and Anthony Hopkins character says, I do. I've lived a full life. Uh, and I thought about that in regards to this and kind of putting in, I, I, I know why I just had a palliative care doctor on the show. That's what drew me to it. I'm sure that's what the connection is. I'm just making that in my own head now, but to think, I, I want to, I, I am at that place and I want to be at that place. And if things ended now, I'm 52, but if they did, I, I've had, I've got enough nice pictures. 
I really do. So if my book doesn't do well, I've got enough nice pictures. If the next endeavor doesn't uh, go well, I, I've got enough nice pictures. I want to be in that place. But I could, I would attribute that to the meaning that I've given to all these things that have happened and I could give the negative meaning. So we're still back to you that even though that I'm going to say, because people are going to hear that and go, well, yeah, this happened. You were a pro cyclist and all these things. It's still, I was, I was a very mediocre pro cyclist. I was, in, I was one of the most mediocre pro cyclists you've ever met. Uh, you know, and I could attribute that. I could just lament it, but I don't, it's a pretty great achievement. I had to have some help understanding that. But you're talking about it's it's kind of smoke and mirrors. We're back to the mind game. You're saying, okay, whatever you did or whatever didn't happen, it's what's the meaning and the story. Yeah. That's what matters, and that's and that is the thing that we do have control over. Yes, we do. And I, I love that movie. I can't watch that movie without tearing up at the end of it. So I really oh relate to what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, this is very much about how we make meaning. People don't learn how to make meaning in constructive ways, which is something I'm now focused on. But I want to ask you a question. Um, mm -hmm. So you talked about if you were to die, and I want to propose to you, without going into why I believe this, that there's um, eight possible emotions we'll experience when we die. Okay. And five of them are negative. They are guilt, anger, longing, confusion, and disappointment. The three positive ones are love, curiosity, and euphoria. Hmm. If you were to die today, what would be your final emotion? Honestly, Jake, I, I relate. I've spent more, I don't know if it's morbid or, or morbid or mature, but I've spent time thinking of it. I did last night. Yep. And Primarily that love, gratitude, awe, yeah. awe that I, I I've got I'm I'm blown away that I, I, what I've gotten to experience that the babies I've held in my arms and the yeah. the the experience that I've had and even the richness and wealth and the growing peace that I have today. So love, yes, curiosity, absolutely, absolutely, and euphoria. I think so. Even in a you know, I'm honestly grappling with that one because I almost feel guilty about that, about the fact, the feeling of euphoria. Really, I did. I think I did last night, uh, Jake, and and a feeling of like, you know, it's also life's also tiring. It's I love it. I love getting up in the morning, curious and inspired. There's things that I want to do and I want to experience, and it's also tiring. And if the ends here, I almost feel like I, it's been good. And and I also expect to live. I mean, I'd really like to be in my nineties, still writing a book. So I got a long time to go. But um, I'm grappling with that. It's interesting that you would ask that and you put that out there. Euphoria and almost a bit of guilt for feeling that. So this is a really different measurement. You and I talked in the earlier segment about, I think it was earlier segment about the measurements that I had been using around productivity and achievement. Yes. Now we're switching to a different measurement, which is you, if you think about your final emotion, and you can only have one, the, the last emotion before you pass away, hmm. this is a different measurement. And listening to you, I feel really comfortable that you're living your life well. Hmm. If, if that's your answer, it would be, first you said love, and then you said there'd probably, I'd probably also be grateful and definitely curious and maybe euphoria. That's just a great feedback. 
in terms of how you're living your life. And I also want to point out how your attitude has shifted about your book. So 30 minutes ago, you, you, you genuinely were saying, you know, if my book doesn't do well, that would be, that'd be tough. And now you're saying, and I think you're completely congruent saying my book will do what it does. It doesn't change the fact that I've got a great life. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're talking about holding babies instead of whether you got good reviews or not. Mm -hmm. Now, how's that possible? How do you shift in a half hour to where you are right now? Because you're a good therapist and you've helped me change the meaning that I attribute to it. And we can do this. We can change meaning in a way that's actually very significant. Yeah. And it, yeah. Though, though I, I will, I will also add to that, Jake. It it calls me more into questioning my motives before I start anything. So, because if I had started to, if I had done the book thinking I need to make money, or I want to be famous, or whatever, for the book to fail would be would be even more difficult. The reality that what spawned it and finally got me to commit to a book, which I which I had been. Um, I had been asked to do before and, and just wasn't willing to, but what did was my kids. It was a message that I wanted for my kids. And oh, so cool. in that, in that, if the book doesn't sell, like you said, it's still a win uh, for me. And that's, again, we're, I'm just, we're, we're playing a mind game and changing the meaning we attribute to it. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you write another book, I, I heard you uh, recently mention that, you know, when you write a book for a large publisher, it, it is very demanding. There's all sorts of details you have to attend to. And I had that experience as well. And so now what I'm writing, I'm not going, going to go through a large publisher because I want to love it. I want, I want it to be something that I would love to read. And when we worked with a publisher, uh, the simple way of putting it is they were, they were pretty woke. Uh -huh. And so I had to accommodate that. And I don't, I don't say that critically, that's their job. Um, they know their market, but I had to phrase things and say things in my co-author as well in ways that weren't natural to me. Uh -huh. And so now I want to do it my way, just my way, love what I write and just be excited to share it with somebody and go, Hey, I think you'll really love this. Well, to come back here and we'll promote the fire out of it okay. uh, and, 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 and do that aspect of, um, it, you know, the, I, I will say, speaking of movies, the last emotion before you pass away. I, I also watched recently a couple of weeks ago, uh, the movie, the whale. And I watched it because it, the awards that it won. And I was curious about the aspect of obesity and addiction and, and what happened. Very difficult movie. Uh, I don't know that I would, it's not a feel good movie. Uh, yeah. So I don't know, uh, you watch it for different reasons. But that last emotion before, the, the way they depict the last emotion before, uh, here's a, a spoiler alert, before he passes away uh, was euphoric and it was mm. inspiring. Mm. Uh, and you bring me back to that. That's a great perspective. I, I want to tell you that a lot of people that I've asked this to, and I heard this from my dad his whole life, which was, I hope I figure out life five minutes before I die. 
And I, hmm. I hear a lot of people say, you know, by time I die. And my whole point is don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait. Okay. This is so folks listening. This is, uh, as, as my wife would say, this is God repeating himself. Uh, because we did, we just had, uh, I think, uh, one or two guests before this show will publish was, um, Jordan Grummet. He, uh, he was a palliative care doctor and his book's called Taking Stock. And that is what we talked about, Jake. That was right there. It was what he learned that people's discovery, what happened, actually not even what happened to them on their deathbed, but when they were given that end of life diagnosis, you have a year to live, six months a year. And the shift that they, that they, that happened from a, the self-protective nature that we tend to live in, the self-construct, to use that word, the self-protective construct to one of possibility and opportunity and how it shifted. And he, him saying, can we do that earlier? Can we do that now before we only have six months to live? So thank you. I share with you a prayer I have, which is, I don't want something to happen to me that I can use as an excuse to wake up and live better. In other words, I want to be awake. I want to live as well as I can, not because I got a diagnosis that I have a year to live. Mm -hmm. I want to do that on my own while my life is good. And because I know that's possible. Uh, you bring it back to responsibility then and, and maturity that I want to do that thing. I want to do that. I want to make that. I want to transcend now yes. Out, yes. outside of a traumatic event yes. instead of waiting for it to happen to me. I want to change jobs now before I get fired or laid off and it's, and it's dire. I want to make the health change now before I get the heart attack diagnosis or, or, or whatnot. And back to the word we were using, not being reactionary, but, yeah. uh, but being responsible. Um, that's beautiful. I thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank um, you. Yeah. I don't believe in telling people about them because I don't think we can ever really know people. We only know our, I know my perception of you. So I can only talk about my perception of you, but, um, my perception of you is you're doing uh, you're doing exactly the right work because of the way this interview feels. I've done a lot of podcasts since our book came out, and they all have a they all have an agenda. Um, in a funny way, they're all oriented towards the audience. The oh. podcaster is trying to do something for the audience, and paradoxically. I feel like you do this in a way that you enjoy, that's personally meaningful to you. And that's what we've been talking. That's why I'm bringing it up. That's what we've been talking about. If we're, if, if we're going to write a book, don't think about the audience, write a book that we love, love writing the book. Um, yeah. If you're going to do a podcast, do it in a way that you love it. It's very uh, refreshing. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Jake. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, I was a I, I'm beyond great. It's, it's, this, this is a moment of awe. Um, mm. having great discussions are, and especially when I connect 
with a person and having a discussion that man, there's nothing I would, there's, there's really nothing I would rather do. It's I, honestly, it's a, it's a, we've had Stephen Kotler on the show. It's a flow state for me, this yeah. to, to enter in discussion. <clears throat> there's no distractions. And here we are with nothing to do, but to discuss this and to ponder it and to question it. It's, it's a gift. I would, I can't believe that I actually make money doing this. I would pay to come have the discussion with you over a glass of tea or, or, or wine uh, would be actually, that would be great. I need to do that. I've not visited Hawaii yet. So there's a, you're, you're welcome here. Uh, it would be, uh, that'd be I, fun. Thank you for the work that you did for the, for the book. Um, but also just for the candor that you would even send me the email to say, if you really want to interview me, we're going to hit on some things that may be, um, difficult. I, it was a joy, it was a joy of a conversation. And I, I will go ahead and end it here. And yet we may need to pick it up again too, because I've, I'm pondering enough. And you've given me some paradigm shifts and there's some things that you said, especially in regards to therapy and, and self-help, you know, personal development and whatever that I think are core issues that we are, we are missing. And again, just like we look at chronic illness and disease and, and it's, it's not, it's not an, it's, it's bad. It's really bad. And we are not conceiving of it and mental health and whatnot. And we need these foundational understandings and what you're saying as a therapist um, can we elect you as the president of the APA, uh, next? <laughs> I don't know if you want that job, but, uh, probably not the right job for me, but, um, let's both ponder. Um, I will contemplate as a result of our conversation and, uh, take notes and, and maybe we will do a follow-up because I feel like we're teasing out a lot of very interesting things and I'm clear that, that we could go further. I, I'm an, I, we've processed a lot, but I'm an internal processor and some things that you've said that I'm going to be chewing on and, uh, whether we discuss those, uh, individually off the mic though, I'm, I, I love putting them on here and I think people do too, which is why the show is, is thankfully doing so well. So Jake, thank you. Thank you again for your candor, for your heart, for your, um, for your humility. Uh, it's incredibly that, inspiring. It's that's a new value by the way, Kevin. Humility. Yeah. It's not yes. one I was familiar with uh, in my 20s, 30s, or 40s, but I value that now. Well, yeah. me neither, which is another reason why I think we resonate because I think we've lived some similar paths and that was not one. And it's one that is is maybe one of my greatest values now. I think it's the best thing I can give my kids, uh, honestly. So, uh, and, and even here on the show. Thank you. Yeah. All right. It's been nothing but a gift. Likewise. Great to connect. That again was Jake Eagle, who along with Michael Amster wrote The Power of Awe, Overcome Burnout and Anxiety, Ease Chronic Pain, Find Clarity and Purpose in Less Than One Minute Per Day. You can find that book, of course, wherever you get your books. Friends, thank you for tuning into the Self-Helpful Podcast, where I curate the sea of new personal development materials and help you integrate wisdom into your life. Because we all want to elevate our own experience and improve the way we show up for others. 